Last time we were together, we left Paul shipwrecked. You remember we talked about the uh, harrowing journey that they had and the storm that came up that, that blew them off course. And, 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 and actually, the storm blew them for about two weeks straight. And they were uh, being pushed along by the winds of the storm uh, for, for 14 days. And, and the storm had pushed Paul's ship. Uh, but when it was all said and done, it had pushed the ship about 470 miles west of Fairhaven uh, Creek. And that was where they started their journey. And uh, when, the, when the storm came up, it took them almost 500 miles off course. And so uh, last time we were together, they, the sh they had landed, the, the, the shipwreck had taken place, but all 279 people on board were saved. They were all safe on the shore. And we're going to pick it up what happens there. It's on the island of Malta, or some versions might say Melita. Same, it's the same island. But only when the, when the crew and the passengers came ashore did they realize that they had reached the island of Malta. When they saw it, they didn't recognize it at first because it wasn't a typical port that sailors would sail into. But they realized where they were when they, when they got ashore and they were told. And this is an island that's 60 miles south of Sicily and 320 miles from Rome. And now, if you don't remember your geography, uh, Sicily... Uh, you remember Italy looks like a boot, right? Everybody remember that? Italy looks like a boot. Sicily is the little island off the toe of the boot that looks like Italy is kicking. So that's Sicily right there. And so, uh, so they're 60 miles south of, of that island and 320 miles from Rome. And now the islanders on the island, they were actually of Phoenician ancestry, which is uh, there along the eastern edge of, of the, the Mediterranean Sea, not far from Israel, those, that region. And, and those, these Phoenician, uh, the, the people of Malta who had come from Phoenician ancestry had given the island its name, and it was actually taken from a Canaanite word for refuge. So the whole idea was that this island was a refuge. It, it had excellent harbors, and it was ideally located for trade, and, and many Roman soldiers retired there because of the, the good weather and the, 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 the comfortable position of the situation. Uh, in fact, many Rome, Roman uh, people, uh, no, I'm sorry, I'm getting confused. I was talking about, I was, there's another city where they would often vacation to, not this one. But uh, though the islanders were, uh, were, were there, they were very kind, they were considered Barbarians. Now, when we hear the word barbarian, we think of, you know, like Conan, <laughs> the barbarian, where it's somebody that's violent and rough, but that's not what the word meant to, to the, to the uh, Greeks or to the Romans. All they meant by a barbarian was somebody who didn't speak Latin or didn't speak Greek. Uh, if they didn't speak Latin or Greek, then they were, they were barbarian. And, it, uh, and so even though they were considered barbarian because of that, they, they demonstrated Tremendous warmth and, and civility to Paul and to the rest of the shipwreck survivors. The, the island's natives, when they saw that this shipwreck was taking place and all these men were coming on, on shore, they built this large bonfire out, out there to help warm the, warm the survivors and to help them dry out. Now, what I love about Paul is when you read the story, and again, we're not reading all this passage this evening just for the sake of time, but... Uh, what I love about Paul was we find out that 
they're building this fire, but he's not just standing around watching and saying, okay, yeah, they're building a fire. That'll be nice. I'll enjoy that. But he's out there gathering wood with them. He's helping them. And here he is, you know, an apostle of God, a man who who wrote much of the New Testament, great man of God, and yet he did not consider himself above menial work. He was leading by example. And that's really what servant leadership is all about when you're talking about leadership in the church. So he's out there helping them and he's gathering wood uh, from wherever it was there, gathering this dead wood, sticks and twigs and, and things that are lying there along the ground. And, uh, and while he's doing that, we're told that a snake came out of the, out of the fire and it attached itself to Paul's hand. Now, what had happened was he probably had mistaken the snake for a small twig as it lay on the ground stiff with the cold because if you, you, you probably are aware that in cold weather, reptiles become extremely lethargic, move very slow, they're very stiff, and so lying in a, in a bundle of twigs and brush, the, the snake, you know, which had its natural camouflage, would, would blend right in and would easily go unnoticed. And, and, and so Paul picks it up thinking it's a, it's a stick and he's carrying it over to the fire and the jostling of Paul's walking combined with the warmth of the fire, it roused that poisonous snake and the snake comes out of the wood and latches onto his hand. So the question at that point in time, listen, here's if, I, if you're ever bitten by a snake, the most important question you can have ask after you're bitten is, what kind of snake is it? Right? So that's the question. And we're told there that the Greek word literally means a viper. Now, the problem today is, and some people, some skeptics will say, oh, see, this is another problem with Scripture. There are no poisonous snakes of any kind on Malta today. But that means nothing. That means nothing uh, uh, at all because uh, changes like that are natural. They, they, they're even probable on small populous long civilized islands like Malta. In fact, uh, if you compare it with, with Ireland, which is an island, uh, that Ireland has been free from snakes for many, many centuries, but tradition in history tells us that snakes were one time plentiful and they're no more there. So it doesn't mean anything if anybody ever brings that up and says, well, see, here's something wrong with scripture. You can say, no, that means nothing. But the snake latches onto Paul's hand and the natives saw this, and the fact that they saw it, and they expected Paul to suffer from its bite, and they expected him to die, that tells us that out of experience, they know this is a poisonous snake. They know this is a bad, bad situation. The, the people of Malta looked at the reptile hanging from the apostle's hand, and, and, and they drew their own conclusions. In their minds, and you got to understand, in their mindset, and in uh, the world that they lived and the way they saw the world and they, they believed in all kinds of different gods and that sort of thing and different forces. They actually believed in a, uh, a, a, a goddess of justice or, or a force of justice, you would say. And so in their mind, they saw this and, uh, and they, when they saw that happen, I mean, think about Paul. You just survive a shipwreck and as you're trying to dry off from the shipwreck, you get bitten by a poisonous snake. How many of you know that's a bad day? But, but they're watching this, and in their mind, they're saying, okay, this guy just survived a shipwreck, 
and now a snake has bitten him already? And in their mind, they, they said, mm, this is justice. This is, this is the, the, the gods. They're not going to let him get away with something. That's probably why the ship was wrecked, is in their mind what they're thinking. And, and they're, they immediately jump to the conclusion. They go, they go r- really far out there, and they say, well, he was probably a murderer. He's, he injust, he's not going to escape justice as a murderer. Uh, and and, and uh, there's a poem in, in the Greek Palatine anthology uh, that tells of a murderer who escaped from a storm at sea and was shipwrecked on the Libyan coast only to be killed by a viper. So they know this story. They see this happen to Paul and they say, oh, he's just like that murderer, so he must be a murderer too. And, and in their belief system, since the snake bit him on his hand, they believed that he must have used that hand to murder somebody, that he had murdered somebody with his own hands. And, and they believe this is the force of justice uh, in, the, in, in its judgment on him. So, so here they are. They see this take place. You know, this man that just escaped the shipwreck and, and the snake latches on. They know what's going to happen because they've seen it before. He's going to swell up really big. He's going to die. This is going to be ugly. And they just sit back to watch. They said, let's just sit back and see what happens to him because that man is going to die. And so what did Paul do? Everybody's sitting back and waiting for him to die. But Paul being a man of God, Paul being a man that had the word of God flowing through his veins. It says this in verse 5. But Paul shook off the snake into the fire and was unharmed. I love that. He shook it off in the fire. As everybody's watching him and waiting for him to die, he just said, get rid of that, and he was unharmed. He he shook it off in the presence of God. He didn't die. The the snake couldn't harm him. See, Paul was not worried at all whether it was poisonous or not because God had already promised him he was going to Rome. God had already told him, this is my will for you. You're you're not going to die on the shipwreck. You're going to Rome. He's not in Rome yet. So even though, even with the snake that the natives say, this is poisonous, you're going to die. He's like, I'm not worried about that because if my God can can save me from a shipwreck, he can save me from a snake bite and and, and I'm going to make it to Rome. I don't care what anybody else says. So Paul went over to the fire, shook it off, and just kept on walking. It wasn't a, wasn't a big deal to him. He didn't make a big thing out of, out of it. He just shook it off. You know, if, we do, if he'd been like a lot of people today, he'd have been, you know, booking himself on TV shows to tell his story about how he shook off the snake. You know, he'd be making a big deal about it. But he just like, whatever, I'm going to get rid of this thing. And I want you to see what happens as a result of this. Because you talk about a quick turnaround. Verse 6, the people waited for him to swell up or suddenly drop dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw that he wasn't harmed, they changed their minds and decided he was a god. (laughs) That just makes me laugh. It's like, oh, that guy's a murderer. Wait, wait, wait. Nope, he's a god. I mean, you go from one extreme to the other here. But I want you to see here, the people changed their minds in just a matter of of a few minutes. And they went from thinking that he was a murderer to thinking that he was a god. Now they were wrong on both counts. They were wrong on both counts. And I want you to know, when you watch this, when you read this, understand this. Human nature is, is to decry you or to deify you. 
There, there, there are going to be people that will look at you and they will, they will say, you're the worst person that ever lived. And other people might look at you and say, oh man, you are the, you are the best that ever lived, all this sort of thing. But remember this, that whether, whether the crowd or whether people around you say you're the best or say the worst, I, I, I try to live by this. You're not as good as the people who like, who like you think you are, and you're not as bad as the people who don't like you think you are. And, you, and the reality is, you can't live your life based on the opinions of other people. There are so many people in the world today that are living their lives trying to live up to what they feel other people perceive them to be. They, they live their lives to please other people and try to get them to like them. And I mean, you see it, it's, it's all over the place in the social media culture. People that, that uh, get depressed because their picture that they post on Instagram didn't get enough likes. And, and the reason they put it on there is not to try to communicate anything, but just to try to get likes. That's all that matters to them. I, I'm here to tell you tonight in your life, don't live for likes. Don't live to get people to like you. Don't live so that people will, will, will look up to you. You live for Jesus. That's what Paul was doing. He was living for Jesus. He was living out the plan of God. He didn't care if they thought he was a murderer. Well, he did care if he thought he was a God. He was, I'm sure he responded like he did in Lystra where he said, no, 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 that's not who I am. But he didn't, wasn't, wasn't, wasn't living his life for people. In fact, later on he wrote this. He said, am I now trying to please men? And he went on and he said, because if, I'm, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of God. But I, I want you to see this. When you are shipwrecked in your life and you continue to trust God, people will see that what came to destroy you actually strengthens you. That what the devil tries to, I mean, think about this. It seems like every time Paul turns around, the devil's trying to do something to try to keep Paul from, from fulfilling the call of God in his life. Every time he turns around, you know, it's a, it's a shipwreck. It's, it's a snake biting him, a poisonous snake biting him. You know, it's being arrested in Jerusalem. All these things, one thing after another after another. But, but now, you know, at this point in time, now he has lived through the storm. He has survived the shipwreck. He has survived the unsurvivable. And look at what happened next. Verse 7. Near the shore where we landed was an estate belonging to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us and treated us kindly for three days. As it happened, Publius's father was ill with fever and dysentery. Paul went in and prayed for him and laying his hands on him. Think about that. This is the same hand that the snake had just been hanging off of, the same hand that, 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 that had, had, had poison injected into it, he now lays his hands on him and he healed him. Then all the other sick people on the island came and were healed. As a result, we were showered with honors, and when the time came to sail, people supplied us with everything we would need for the trip. Here's the one that was supposed to die a long time ago at sea in their minds. Here's the one that managed to make it, make it to the shore safely after a shipwreck. Here's the one that was supposed to die from the bite of a deadly viper. And God is now using him to reveal God's glory to other people. And they listened to him because of what God had done in his life. See, the, the, the thing that, that was meant to destroy him made his ministry stronger because now they said, 
we know that he's not a murderer. We, we're going to pay attention to what he says because that man should be dead. And then he goes up to Publius's house and the man was healed. And, 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 see, some of, you, uh, don't, some of us don't realize that God has brought you through all the storms of your past to put you in a place to minister to other people. See, see you don't realize it. I, I, we say things like, I, I don't know why all this has happened to me. I don't know why I had to go through, through this. I don't know why I have to suffer through, through all these things. It seems like, we say, it seems like I'm the only one that has to go through stuff. No, you're not the only one. We all do. We all face different battles. But it's the way you react to your problems after you come through them that makes the difference. It's the way you respond to the circumstances when you're in the middle, when you're walking through the valley of, of the shadow of death, when you're in the middle of the problem, when you're in the middle of the pain, when you're in the middle of the storm being driven by the wind for two, for, for two weeks at a time, when you're in the middle of that, how you react to it, how you respond to that, how you live by the faith that God gives you, that's what makes all the difference in the world. See, what is taking place when you're walking through the storm, when you're, when you're the one that, that, that finally made it out of the shipwreck only to get a snake latched onto your hand, when you're going through those things, we have to remember God is trying to prepare you for the next part of what you're supposed to do for him. See, Paul moved from being considered a murderer, he moved from being considered a dead man walking to having this powerful ministry on the island. And it was Paul's ability in that moment to shake off that snake that led him into this ministry. Paul's immunity to the snake bite. In fact, it's a direct fulfillment of the words of Jesus in Mark 16 when he said, And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes with their hands, and they will drink deadly poison. It will not hurt them at all, and they will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. This whole passage is a direct fulfillment of that. Now, here's the question. You know, we read that passage where Jesus said that, you know, and, and I'm here to tell you, it does not mean that we should be, you know, handling snakes in the name of Jesus. It doesn't. Somebody, I mean, can somebody say praise the Lord for that? Um, you know, it doesn't mean we should be investing in some snakes. Doesn't mean we should have a cabinet of poison up here in the front of the church to test God, because I want you to see this. In this situation, Paul did not test God by picking up a snake on purpose. He didn't walk over and say, I'm going to show you what God can do and stick his hand in the snake's mouth. That wasn't what happened at all. God's protection is available to all believers. But I'm here to tell you right now, he doesn't always protect us from our own stupidity. Sometimes he does. Thank the Lord for that. Anybody ever been protected by, from your own stupidity before? Let me see your hand. <laughs> yeah, I just want to make sure every hand is up because we all have. But you know what? There are times when we make a foolish, rash, rash decision without talking to the Lord, without listening to him. And he says, okay, now you're going to have to walk through something because I want you to learn something. I, I want you to learn before you make that next decision to pay attention and listen to me. And so he'll let you walk through something because uh, Hebrews chapter 12, you can read about it. Uh, it talks about the discipline of the Lord. We don't like discipline. Even Hebrews 12 talks about that. It says discipline at the time is not pleasant. Right? I mean, did, did any of you, did your kids ever look to you, when you after you 
I'm sure everybody in this room, we're from the generation where we whooped our kids, you know. Any of your kids ever look at you after you gave them a spanking and look at you and say, you know, I just enjoyed that so much. Do you think we could do it again? <laughs> now, if they did, you'd really be worried, right? <laughs> you'd be like, we're getting professional help right now. But, uh, but discipline at the time is, is, is uncomfortable. It's unpleasant. But the Lord walks us through those times when we make those foolish decisions and he, and he walks us through those times of discipline because discipline is designed to teach. It's designed to show us what we should avoid and how we should live, right? That's why you discipline your children. You know, they do something wrong. They do something rebellious. You discipline them because you want to teach them that's not acceptable. Here's how you need to, to, to learn to behave. And that's what God does in our lives sometimes when we make these foolish decisions. Now, the good news is he doesn't leave us in our foolishness. When we make those dumb decisions, he is always has the power. Even when he disciplines us, he has the power to redeem those situations and to bring good out of those situations, even when we, even when we do that. But he, let's, let's, what we just read about, you know, here Paul, he, he goes up to this villa of this, the chief person of the city, of the, and he was the, the leader of the, of the whole area, and he found out that that man's father was suffering from fever and dysentery. Now, uh, Malta has long been, long had a particularly unpleasant fever of its own. It's actually called Malta fever, and it comes uh, from, uh, it's caused by a microbe in goat's milk that's there on that island. And this is probably what he was suffering from. And, and people who got that, from what I read today, they said, they said that, uh, uh, that people who, who had that, that particular ailment from that microbe might be sick for, for two or three months or they might be sick for two or three years. So it's a very, very difficult thing, a very horrible thing. And many people died from it, but they died from being dehydrated uh, be, because of the effects of this. And so he goes to this man, and he is healed. And, and word immediately, it's, it's very similar to when Jesus would heal somebody and, and word would get out. And word got out around the island about this healing, and, and soon every, all those that were sick were coming to Paul for healing, and the Lord met them there. And so, so I want you to see, here he went from shipwrecked and being bitten by a poisonous snake to having this powerful ministry with the declaration of the gospel on the island of Malta, people being healed, this great revival is breaking out. And, and we see in this, we see the truth of God's word in Romans 8, 28 that we have, we've seen in action so many times in the book of Acts. And we know that in all things, even in shipwreck, even in snake bites, even in storms, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. And God brought blessing and healing uh, uh, in the gospel uh, uh, to this island through a shipwreck. See, we, we, we would look at that and we say, why do I have to be shipwrecked, God? But maybe it was because the people of Malta needed to hear the gospel. And Paul was not going to make a stop in Malta. That wasn't where he was going. He was going to go straight to Rome. 
But Paul, uh, God knew that Paul needed to be on the island of Malta because he knew there was a man who needed to be healed, which would confirm the, the message of the gospel and that the gospel would go forth in power among the people of Malta. And in fact, to this day, there is a strong Christian presence on the island of Malta. As they, and they, they commemorate the time when Paul came to the, to the island. It's a powerful thing. And so the people, when the time finally came for them to leave the island, they responded by honoring Paul and all his companions, and uh, probably meaning uh, that, that they, not only did they honor them, but they probably gave them money that they needed for the travels, and they supplied their, their needs for their journey as they continued on to Rome. So, but they were there for three months during this time, this three months of ministry. And I'm just here to tell you, it's very likely that at this point in time, after everything he had been through, Paul really needed a three-month rest. And he's on this beautiful island of Malta, and they stayed there during the three months of, of the winter, winter months. And Paul, at the end of this three-month time uh, of much-needed rest, Paul and his men boarded, boarded another Alexandrian ship, probably, again, loaded with grain bound for Syracuse, not Syracuse, New York, but Syracuse, which was the capital of the city of the Roman province of Sicily. So they're, they're sailing north from Malta and, and, uh, uh, and going directly 60 miles north to the city of Syracuse. And they get there and, the, and there's a, the winds change and there's a three-day layover. And then the ship sailed against the wind, tacking its way to, to Regium where its passengers waited for a south wind. They didn't have to wait for very long at all because three days later uh, they arrived in, in Puteoli, uh, a, a seaport on the, the Bay of Naples, famous. Uh, this is not what you want to be famous for. It was famous for its very foul-smelling sulfur springs. Um, anybody ever smelled sulfur, or the really strong sulfur? It's like rotten eggs. And, and that's what the city of, of Puteoli, it ought to be. It ought to be pronounced Pudioli. Uh, but the city of Pudioli was famous for that. And this is the city I was talking about earlier that I mentioned that in spite of the smell, this was a region that many Romans went to for vacation. I don't know why you would choose a place that smells like rotten eggs, but they liked it for some reason. So they arrived there. And at this time, this was the main port that fed the city of Rome, even though Rome was quite some distance away Later on, there was another larger port that opened that, they, that, that uh, was closer to Rome. But at this point in time, even if that had been open, they might have gone there anyway because the other port would be much busier. So they arrived there on this, in the city of Puteoli, and the, the centurion allowed Paul to visit Christians in the area. Now, this is, this is really powerful to think about the fact that there are Christians there because to this point in time, no apostle has ever visited this region. They have not had an apostle come and start a church. Probably what has taken place is these were people who were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and got saved and filled with the Spirit. And when they went back home, they started reaching people and they began and they established churches in that region. So this is they've never met before. But he goes and, and for a week, the centurion, uh, Julian, I believe was his name, uh, met with these Christians, and then they departed a week later for the capital city of the empire, Rome. Now the, the missionaries most likely walked to, to Capua, 
and then followed the famous Appian Way. And that was 143 miles to Rome. Sounds like a long way. But when you, when you look at the journey he's taken, that had to feel like he was just practically next door. And I love the way Luke says this. He sometimes is the master of the understatement because he goes through all of this journey and he says, and, and so we came to Rome. <laughs> what, what an understatement. I mean, I would have been like, I would have made that a lot bigger deal, but he, that's all he said. So we came to Rome. I mean, for years, Paul had wanted to come to Rome. He had written them already, his great Roman epistle, three years before this time. He had prayed to, to God to see the Roman Christians face to face. And, and at long last, after years in prison in Caesarea and, and one of the most harrowing sea voyages on record and being bitten by a poisonous snake, all of these things, he finally, finally, finally made it to Rome. Well, the believers in Rome heard about Paul's imminent excuse me, arrival, probably due to messengers that were sent by the believers in Puteoli, and eager to meet and greet the great apostle, an entourage headed south, and they intercepted Paul, Paul's party at the forum on the Appian Way. It was a, that's a town that's about 43 miles from Rome. They're so, now listen, this is not like you jump in your car and drive 43 miles down the road. But they were so excited to meet Paul after receiving his letter, after, after they felt like they knew him after reading the letter that he'd sent them. 43 miles away, they finally they catch up to him. Then a second welcoming committee of Roman believers encountered Paul at a little uh, place called the Three Taverns, which is 35 miles south of Rome. Now, by the way, I want you to understand, we, tavern to us usually means something different than what it did to them. Because we think of ta tavern, we, we tend to think of like a bar. That's not what it was. A tavern was a shop or a place that provided food and lodging. So it would be more like a restaurant hotel slash thing, a bed and breakfast sort of thing. And, and the Appian Way was a, was a main thoroughfare to Rome from the south. So there were many, many places like this. And they met him there. And I, I mean, you see this. You picture in this mind that Paul's group, as they're traveling to Rome, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. The closer they get to Rome, more and more people are coming out of Rome to meet him, and they're traveling along with him. And so Paul's entrance to Rome was more like a victor's triumphal entry than it was a prisoner's march. And you know, when Paul saw all these people coming to him, it says he was greatly encouraged. Think about it. He knows now, he knows some different things. Number one, he knows that the time he spent writing that letter to the Romans was worth it. Because he knows that they have read that, that it has had an impact on their life because they're coming 43 miles out from Rome to meet him. But he also knows, I'm not alone. The body of Christ is here with me. Even though I'm still a prisoner, I'm not alone. After this harrowing experience, he, he received encouragement through other believers. And listen, that's so important for us to remember because when you are discouraged, anybody here ever been discouraged in your life? You bet you have because you're a human being. That's part of what it means. We go through times where we feel discouraged, but in that moment, see what happens is in that moment, the devil tries to tempt us 
to, to withdraw from, from fellow believers. This, when we're discouraged, we begin to say, I don't know if I want to go to church today, or, or I don't want to go if I want to go to, to a small group today. And, and we get discouraged and we begin to separate ourselves and withdraw ourselves. But we need to know that in the moment when we're feeling discouragement, that's when we need the people of God all the more. That's when we need to be around the church. That's when we need to be in church. That's when we need to be in our small group because it's in, it's in coming together that we are encouraged together. It's the people of God that he uses to encourage us. So important to know if you're discouraged, don't withdraw. Press in all the more. Press in all the more. Well, at last, Paul arrived in Rome, the most influential city on earth. I mean, this was the fulfillment of a long-term desire and the fulfillment of the, of the will of God as made known to Paul. And, and though he was guarded around the clock by, by a soldier, probably on, on uh, four or six-hour shifts where they would change off every so often, he actually had much more freedom than your typical prisoner. He had freedom to move about within his confine, the confines of his residence. He was able to, to rent a place for himself. And from what we know, it, it wasn't just like a little tiny one-room apartment somewhere because he had a large enough room where he could have large groups, groups come in to visit him and he'd be able to teach and preach to them. And he was allowed to do all of those things. All, only, the only thing was he didn't have the liberty to actually leave and go anywhere. And it seems to suggest that he was probably lightly chained to a guard. So Paul... As he always did, when he'd go to a new city, who did he go to first? He went to the Jews first. Now the problem is, he can't go to the Jews. He's confined. He's, he's under house arrest. So he invites them to come to him because he couldn't go to them. And, and they came. And during their visit, he, he explained to them the reasons for his imprisonment. He was afraid. Listen, he was, he was concerned that the that the, uh, his Jewish enemies in Jerusalem had sent word to the Jewish people in, in uh, Rome and told him lies about him and that they were already going to be causing uh, trouble. But, but he really didn't need to worry about it too much because uh, you remember we talked about it a few weeks ago how at one point in time all the Jews were expelled from Rome. You remember that? Because of riots uh, the, as, as the historian said, uh, be, uh, due to a man named Crestus, which we believe it was probably the Jews riding against Christians at the time. Well, now Nero is now the, the emperor. When Nero came into power, he rescinded that order and the Jews were able to come back into town. However, they did not want a repeat of that. They didn't want to stir up trouble because they had just got, been, able, been allowed to come back to Rome. And so anyway, Paul begins to tell him why he'd been arrested and what was going on and all of these things. And, and in fact, he, he, he declared to them, he said, listen, really, I'm a prisoner of Rome because of the hope of Israel. Now, what is the hope of Israel? The hope of Israel was the hope that the Messiah would come. And he was there. He was telling them, listen, the reason I'm in prison is because of the hope of Israel. And I want you to know that the hope of Israel, the Messiah, has come. And he began to, to tell them about Jesus. Now, the, the Jews there assured him that they had received no communication from Jerusalem about him, and, and that must have been a relief to him. 
But he was even, it was even more important was the fact that they expressed their desire to hear more from Paul about this, this Messiah that he was talking about. So he began to meet with them, and a large crowd of Jews gathered at Paul's house. And from early in the morning until late evening, he explained the kingdom of God. He explained to them the story of Jesus. He told them about how he fulfilled all these Old Testament prophecies, and all of it pointed to him being the Messiah, and that he, is, that he died, but now he's alive. Told them the whole story. And you know what happened? It's the same thing that happens today when we preach the gospel. Some believed, and some didn't. But you know what? Paul wasn't surprised when they didn't believe. And he quoted Isaiah to them. And by, and by the way, by quoting this, made some of them very angry. But he, he read to them, he quoted from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, where it says, He said, Go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of the people calloused, Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. See, though many of them as Jews had God's word in their head, they knew the word. It had never filtered down into their hearts and changed their lives. All just a few inches. And you know what? This is the great danger of being religious. And what I mean by religious is religion is all about following the rules. And, and, and that's what the Jews had become. It was all about following the rules, following the law, keeping the law. And, 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 you know, and when we do that, rich words and meaningful truth can, can easily turn into overused cliches and meaningless rituals. And years of going through the motions can cause our hearts to become numb to the truth. Even more sobering is the fact that in this deadened state, people often deceive themselves into thinking they're honoring God. But, but listen, hear me on this. This is so important for us to hear. It is so easy for us as human beings to begin to pursue principles instead of pursuing a person. The principles don't mean anything without the person of Jesus. It's easy for us to become obsessed with our, our checklist of, well, we do this and we don't do that, we do this, we don't do that, we don't go there, but we do go here and all these things. It's easy to get obsessed with all of our do's and don'ts. And listen, I'm not saying that we don't need to be concerned about holiness. If you know me at all, you know that's not what I, I believe at all. But I'm just saying this, that, that it's not the pursuing the do's and don'ts that makes a difference in our lives. It's pursuing the person of Jesus as he leads us into that holiness, as he leads us into what the word says. And, and when, we, when we become obsessed that way, what happens is we then become very hard-hearted and we become people who, who really dislike people who break the rules and therefore we build walls instead of bridges and then we eventually become so hard-hearted that we refuse to believe the truth when we hear it. And this is exactly what happened to many of the Jews. There are none so deaf of the, as those who will not hear and none so blind as those who will not see. 
And so these Jews, many of them rejected Christ. And Paul informs them that because of their rejection, that God's salvation was being offered to the Gentiles. And he, he emphasized the word they, and he says, and they will listen. So for two years, Paul was able to preach and teach boldly and freely, wel welcoming all who came into his apartment. For two years, he was in, in custody there in, in Rome, and neither Jews nor Romans hindered his witness to Christ. And we're even told in Philippians chapter 4 that, 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 that there were some from Caesar's very own household who, who were saved, who were converted, who began to follow Christ, probably came about through the witness of soldiers uh, to, to the whole palace guard. I mean, think about it. No doubt, it, there's no question, you know, drawing the duty to be chained to a prisoner was not something soldiers enjoyed. That's not what you really want to do if you're a soldier. And, because most prisoners would be difficult. Most prisoners are not going to be, you know, in a good situation. But Paul was different. Not only was he full of the joy of the Lord, but think about this. Think, think how wonderful this is for Paul. And you say, how can it be wonderful? Well, it's because all these soldiers were a captive audience. They couldn't go anywhere. They had to listen to every word as he was teaching. Every word as he was preaching the gospel, these soldiers heard for two years as they rotated duties. They heard the gospel. They heard about Jesus and they saw that, that, that Jesus was real in Paul's life. And there is no doubt, we can be absolutely certain that, that many of them accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord, and then they became effective witnesses for Jesus in Rome and in Caesar's household. It was during this two-year two period that Paul wrote what's called the prison epistles. He wrote to the Philippians. You can read that. This all took place here. He wrote to the Ephesians. He wrote to, wrote to the Colossians, which... There are a lot of similarities between the book of Ephesians and the epistle to the Colossians, uh, which may mean that he actually wrote them about the same time. He may have used one as sort of a model to write to the other one. And then he also wrote, those were to, to churches, but then he also wrote a letter to a, an individual, a man named Philemon. And he wrote that while he was here in Rome during this two-year period. Then after two years, he was released. Now some... We don't really know why. Some believe Paul was released after two years because he was finally called before the emperor and the Jews had nobody there to bring the accusation. So if there's nobody there to bring the accusation, the emperor says, this case is dismissed, get out of here. Others say, well, that probably what happened was the case was automatically dismissed at the end of the two years because no charges were brought. We know that from Philemon, verse 22, that Paul expected to be released. And we know from 1 Timothy, it shows that he, he was indeed released and he went to the Roman province of Asia. Ancient tradition says that later he traveled to Spain and preached the gospel there. And sometime after that, he was arrested again. His second imprisonment followed and he was put to death. Now, here's the interesting, interesting, interesting thing about this, this chapter and this book. Because let me, just, let me just get to here where it's, what it says. Because it's really a rather abrupt ending. Because he's telling all these things. He says um, he, he, lived, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who, who uh, came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ 
with all boldness and without hindrance, and that's it. There's no formal conclusion. There's nothing. It's just this triumphal note that, the, that he's preaching the gospel without hindrance, that, that it's going forth. And, and really, that's probably the ultimate goal of Luke because it started off in chapter 1 talking about how the gospel is going to be preached in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, now he has gone to Rome. This is, the, this is the, the most important city in the world. From here, the gospel is going everywhere. So in a way, he has shown how the progression of the, how, what the gospel has done. But still, there, there's no conclusion. It's just a sudden, abrupt stop right there. It ends as if there's going to be a sequel. And, and well, I want you to know that has really always been the spirit of the church and, and the spirit of the gospel. I read today about uh, something uh, from World War II. During World War II, you, you all know this, the story when England was being bombed the, by, the, by the Nazis, by Hitler's Luftwaffe, and, uh, and they were being bombed, and it was just, London was in, in, in shambles, buildings were collapsed, all these things. And, but then as time wore on, the, the British never never gave up. They kept resisting, kept fighting. But then eventually they started, some of their, they and some of their allies started winning some battles. And then, then the United States entered the war. And in, in this moment, when things started to seem as if, as if the tide was turning, Churchill really, really was worried that this sense of complacency uh, might begin to creep into his fellow countrymen. And, and, and so he, to avoid that, he gave this speech, and this is one of the things he said in this. I want to read this quote, because this is really, really great for this ending. He said to the people, he said, now this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end. But it is perhaps the end of the beginning. Some of you look a little confused. When Luke laid down his pen after writing the book of Acts, it was really, it was merely the end of the beginning. It was just the start of what God was going to do. You know why there's no formal conclusion to the book of Acts? It's because we are living in Acts chapter 29. We are, we are the conclusion. We are the sequel. The church of Jesus Christ throughout the centuries, all over the world, we are living out Acts 29. God, God's Spirit is still at work. He's still saving. He's still drawing. He's still uh, healing. He's still doing all of the things that He did in the book of Acts. And we are the ones that are living in the middle of the story of Jesus Christ and what He's doing in the world around us. And so as we think about that, my mind goes back to, you remember when the first persecution broke out against the, the Christians in Jerusalem? And Peter and John were whipped, and they were released, and they went back, and they, they told the other believers what they, uh, what they had been through and what, was, what would have been said to them. And you remember they had a prayer meeting. It was in the prayer meeting that, that said that the house where they were in was shaken. But I go back to the prayer that they prayed, and I, th I, I think to myself, this must still be our prayer. Because they prayed, Lord, enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. 
Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. May we live, Acts 29, with that prayer. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord God, for this powerful book.